You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, did aliens build the pyramids? Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Jim Newman, and joining me tonight we have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Huxley Newman. Huxley, did you prepare a segment for us tonight? I'll take that as a no. (laughs) Today we're talking about space aliens. Specifically, how some historians claim that human history has been drastically influenced by contact with extraterrestrials. Sorry, did I say historians? (laughs) I meant to say Swiss hoteliers, American sci-fi authors, and French sports journalists. (laughs) So yes, today we're talking about the space alien pseudo-histories of Eric von Daniken, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Raelians. But first, let's start with a brief follow-up on episode 105, which was our episode about mental health and stigma. I have suspected for some time that I suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorder, and this diagnosis has recently been confirmed. There's nothing terribly surprising there for anybody who knows me, (laughs) Uh, but I figured that these things can be difficult to talk about, and as we talked about on the episode, uh, it's good to discuss these things openly and not to hide them away. Uh, You know, everybody has things that they struggle with, and that's one of mine. Well, welcome to the fold. You're still a weirdo, and we still like you. Next, we have a couple of follow-up items on episode 110, our episode about uh, race and science. Since we last recorded, uh, because we had two episodes in the bag for when uh, Huxley was born, the SGU actually happened to do a segment about the science of race, covering some of the same ground that Ashlyn covered in her segment on episode 110. Dr. Novella also talked about how physicians use a patient's perceived phenotypic race as a rough, very rough, probabilistic marker for certain genes that are medically relevant. So that's in episode 577 of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, if our listeners are interested in checking that out. Next, we actually got a bit of feedback. Drake, a commenter on uh, the LUEE website, uh, had this to say. I'll I'll just quote them directly. Fantastic show, you guys. As... Almost always, you ventured deep into the topic and were quite thorough. I appreciate that you dig into the nooks and crannies and possibilities without straying too far into unsupported speculation and conjecture. Here comes the but. It's not really a but. It's more some suggestions for you to consider. When you talk about race, or any issues that particularly affect certain subaltern groups, remind the audience that those people are listening also, and encourage everyone to think about what it must be like to be them hearing it. It is great that you located yourselves in relation to the subjects of the topic, to simplify as white, and I do think it's laudable you waited in despite what were likely trepidations. You acknowledged at the end it was difficult for you, so again, don't forget to acknowledge the people whom these horrible ideas are directed towards. 
A commonly used mechanism for denial about racism is to tuck it away into the recesses of our minds and to go on with daily life, often thinking of it as something from the past. As you know, a big problem with confronting racism is that it is defined inadequately as discrete, overt, intentional events that occur between individuals. But these poisonous ideas are embedded deeply into the culture and manifest not as discrete, overt events, but as pervasive, ongoing behaviors that overlay every aspect of the daily life of a racialized person. Of course, this in turn contributes to how systems embed inequality, but I'll narrow the scope here. As a black queer person, I live day-to-day with the subtle, embedded assumptions of me as devious, stupid, dishonest, lazy, incompetent, unworthy, not quite fully human, etc. Often the people holding these beliefs are not aware of them and are not able to articulate them or where they come from, as implicit bias tests demonstrate. So when talking about a topic such as racism, remember to remind the audience that people live every day with the sometimes subtle and sometimes overt day-to-day manifestations of these beliefs today. Encourage them to imagine how these beliefs might be expressed in day-to-day life of the subaltern person, with a co-worker, a boss, a mechanic, a client, a cashier, a stranger on the street. Hopefully this can promote awareness and empathy in addition to knowledge. Again, great work and thanks. So thank you very much, Drake. We really appreciate that feedback, as I mm-hmm. as I said on the site. And thanks for uh, uh, allowing me to quote that verbatim, because... That entire opinion was important and good for us to hear, and our <laughs> listeners to hear. Yeah, and I don't feel exceptionally qualified to, to summarize it <laughs> as a white dude. Some of the best feedback we've ever gotten. Yeah. yeah. So with the feedback behind us, let's forge ahead with Chariots of the Gods. So we're talking about the ancient astronaut theory, popularized by Eric von Daniken's 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods. And yes, I read that entire book cover to cover for you people. On purpose. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Some listeners are probably most familiar with the ancient astronaut theory as popularized by the, frankly, delightful Giorgio Tsoukalos on Ancient Aliens. The only way the ancient astronaut theory can be disproven is when the extraterrestrials show up and say, we were never here in the past. I'm sure we'll get lots of sound bites uh, of his inserted into this episode here and there. Uh, I'll summarize the book for our listeners and give my impressions, but if you're thinking about giving it a read, let me suggest instead that you save yourself some grief and just watch Stargate. Uh, Chariots of the Gods is basically just a boring History Channel version of Stargate, but without Kurt Russell, or Richard Dean Anderson, I guess. The basic story is that ancient cultures were visited by extraterrestrials who ruled as kings and gave gifts of great technology. There are basically three main claims here. One is that no one has a plausible explanation for how many ancient artifacts and structures, from the Egyptian and Mayan pyramids to the Iron Pillar at Delhi, were created, or even why they were created. I have a question. When do we get to start playing Spot the Logical Fallacy? Hold on, hold on. (laughs) He's just laying out the premise right now. I'm impatient. And on the balance of evidence, Von Daniken claims that extraterrestrial intervention seems the most plausible explanation. Two, ancient artwork seems to depict technologically advanced extraterrestrials armed with lasers, piloting spacecraft, etc. These statues look like some type of a being wearing an astronaut suit. And three, mythological and religious stories from around the world are consistent with and best explained by encounters with advanced alien visitors, the gods from whom the book takes its title. 
So generally, uh, I found this book delightful. <laughs> and it probably would have been even more fun to read if I hadn't been scribbling notes continuously. And by scribbling notes, I mean struggling endlessly with the terrible note-taking interface on my Kindle. <laughs> oh boy, the, the uh, keyboard on the Kindle is just awful. Even so, you know, you can't help but giggle with glee when you're reading a book that claims the Ark of the Covenant was an electric radio that the Israelites used to communicate with their alien overlords. <laughs> is that amazing? Is that why it takes the flesh off of Nazis? <laughs> yeah, presumably, yeah. Okay, just checking. Yeah, that's how he explains uh, the, the people being struck dead as they approached it. Mm. Undoubtedly, the Ark was electrically charged. So, Von Daniken knows that you're not going to take him seriously. Uh, not at first, at least. <laughs> so, th the very first thing that struck me about this book, uh, and I think I mentioned this to Laura right after I opened it up, was that so many chapter titles end in question marks. Mm. <laughs> ancient imagination and legends, or ancient facts? Ancient marvels, or space travel centers? Was God an astronaut? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even the title of the book itself isn't Chariots of the Gods, at least in the original printings. It's Chariots of the Gods? <laughs> <laughs> the end? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> it, it can't help but bring to mind Betteridge's Law of Headlines, which, uh, for listeners who might not be aware, is... Any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. <laughs> <laughs> it's surprisingly accurate. <laughs> yeah. And it, in fact, whenever I title a, a podcast or a post to the blog or whatever with a question mark, I make sure that it conforms to Betteridge's Law. <laughs> so uh, Von Daniken will say, could it be that this feature or that feature is indicative of, uh, to use his words, visitors from the universe in remote antiquity? Hmm, perhaps, perhaps. Don't mind me, I'm just asking questions. He, he's just engaging in, like, classic anomaly hunting. The comparison to 9-11 truthers is probably obvious, but we see it in conspiracy theories of all stripes. Basically, he's trying to avoid staking any specific claim, because that means that any reasonable explanation of the anomalies that he's noted can't actually count as evidence against the central thesis of his book. You know, you can shoot down any one of these claims, and we'll get to that, don't worry, <laughs> but the, the because he's just posing them as uh, mysteries or speculations, he's insulated his central thesis against criticism. Some may say. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> It's also clear, and this struck me very early on, that uh, Eric Von Daniken has quite the Galileo complex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's persecuted. Yeah, he's persecuted oh, by boy. the establishment, but secure in the knowledge that he will be proved right eventually. He describes mm -hmm. the process of evaluating an archaeological find in terms like a leaning on the crutch of hereditary orthodox learning. Wow. <laughs> And up to a certain point, I think that some philosophers of science, like Thomas Kuhn, might have agreed with him. But then when he starts in with the space aliens, I think maybe he's, he's uh, stepped over a line. He spends a lot of time poo-pooing explanations arrived at by archaeologists, asserting that we certainly don't know for certain how the pyramids were built. But then he turns around and says we do know, or at least strongly implies that we do know, and it was aliens. <laughs> we don't know how the Easter Island heads were created. Therefore, we do know, and it was aliens. We don't have an explanation. Therefore, we do have an explanation, and it's my explanation. <laughs> right. It's very God of the Gaps, except aliens of the Gaps. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Unfortunately for Von Daniken, uh, <laughs> in a lot of cases we do have several good explanations uh, for these uh, mysteries that he points out, but he stammers in incredulity and waves it away. But even if we couldn't explain these things, uh, as you're alluding to Ashlyn with the God of the Gaps, that doesn't make his argument valid in the least. It's perfectly reasonable to say, I don't know. To quote Dara O'Brien, just because science doesn't know everything doesn't mean that you can fill in the gaps with whatever fairy tale most appeals to you. <laughs> Just because your pet theory is aliens doesn't mean that angels or demons or the Greek gods or whatever nonsense, or even <gasps> a more mundane explanation, couldn't fill the gap just as well. So, without further ado, I am just going to throw out some of the claims that Von Daniken <laughs> makes to get them out of the way, and then, then we'll maybe dive into some, some of the specifics. Here are some claims. The human race is the result of an alien breeding program. The human race as it exists today. The, the book certainly shows its age in the type of terminology used. Uh, it also shows its editor, who is actually uh, an editor for the uh, SS newspaper in Germany. Okay. Yeah. You know, humans existed as ignorant savages, bereft of any technology, until the aliens came, and uh, with their breeding program, they created the new race of humans. The health and sanitizers. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> In the middle man. Yeah. Arc B, right? <laughs> yep. Push off, will you? That's a good fellow. I'm trying to take a relaxing bath. Another claim. The god of the Old Testament was actually a race of extraterrestrials. Extraterrestrials. One extraterrestrial. No, uh, specifically several, and we'll so get to why. <laughs> the Egyptian pyramids were built by, or with the help of, aliens. Aliens. The Nazca Lines of Peru are alien landing strips. The star people. Why at least one of them looks like a giant bird, I don't know. That's not a very good landing strip, but... One is shaped like a penis. <laughs> yeah, yep. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by a hydrogen bomb. Oh. The best explanation for the Tunguska event is the explosion of the nuclear reactor of an alien spaceship. Well, that's good to know. And Von Daniken seems convinced that any mythological claim must have at least some basis in fact. Nothing in his mind can be constructed out of whole cloth. You can't ever just make up a story, and this is a theme that he returns to again and again. So, for example, he's talking about giants, which are mentioned in mythology and also in the Old Testament. Uh, so uh, mythology. Right. <laughs> Thank you. And I quote, Giants haunt the pages of almost all ancient books. So they must have existed. Here's another one. There is a good deal to support the fact that David fought with a giant with six fingers and six toes in his day. He doesn't go into what the good deal of support could possibly be. Just that there is. Was, was David an eagle Montoya? <laughs> uh, he also likes to talk about the flying gods, the fact that in many mythologies you have gods that have the ability to fly, uh, which he claims is uh, evidence of rocket belts. <laughs> so they, it's very golden age of sci-fi. Obviously, yeah. So uh, he says, quote, the large number of passages from old texts already quoted turns the suspicion that men encountered flying gods in antiquity almost into a certainty. Almost. Does this make Elton John a philosopher? <laughs> so, let's talk about some of his claims in specific. Was God an astronaut? Sure. Why not? 
Von Daniken's view seems to be that anything that he cannot immediately explain in space or here on Earth is probably the result of aliens. Aliens. And he seems remarkably sure that he understands the thoughts and motivations of these alien intelligences. He, he's constantly engaging in anthropomorphism. The extraterrestrials he imagines act, think, and look just like us, and have motivations that are perfectly understandable to us, instead of being truly alien. Do they speak in old British accents? <laughs> I imagine they must, or, or maybe Swiss accents. I don't know. He, he was made in the aliens' images. God. So, these aliens found us as uh, primitive savages, gave us gifts of technology, interbred with us, and ruled over us as god-kings. And when they left, they left cargo cults behind, which grew into the world religions that we know today. Mm. So, they're Prince Philip. That's really fascinating, that sort of mindset, that they must be totally understandable. Yeah, it betrays a serious lack of imagination. Yeah. Von Daniken seems consistently surprised that so many mythic traditions include references to gods and men interbreeding, which he takes as solid evidence that the human race as it exists today is the result of alien breeding programs. But the idea of Congress between humans and gods is only strange and novel if you look at it from, like, the monotheistic perspective of uh, an almighty god that is not anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. And arguably, it doesn't even make sense even then. I mean, whence came Jesus, after all? But uh... <laughs> so when did one of these aliens turn into a swan and impregnate somebody? Uh, ev evidently, the aliens' understanding of human biology was just as bad as the ancient Greeks. <laughs> okay. Just checking. So, putting aside the almost certain biological impossibility of interbreeding between aliens and human beings, like, this isn't Star Trek. <laughs> I've always wanted to make love with an alien. It's not that easy. There are differences in the way that my people make love. I can't wait to learn. Uh, this alien breeding program seems like an explanation in search of a mystery, you know? Why do we need to explain stories of gods and men interbreeding? Why is that something that is so startling or unusual? Oh, this is a good one. <laughs> Von Daniken goes on at length about how unlikely it is that our ancestors would have worshipped gods with animal heads. He has this real... It sticks in his craw that so many mythologies have these animal gods. You know, animals you have... weren't like important to people or anything. Right, right. But, <laughs> but like a livelihood, food source, all sorts of but things. But this is a sticking point, right? We eat animals. At least, I guess, a minority of people at this table eat animals. <laughs> <laughs> they eat animals. After all, why would why would we worship them? It's not like they're symbols of power or ferocity or whatever. So he casts about for another explanation. Any, any guesses as to what these animal gods that we see depicted in stories or on cave walls or whatever, what these are? Oh, I know, I know. Aliens. Extraterrestrials. <laughs> However did you guess? <laughs> I read your notes. Aha, <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, he exclaims. Those aren't animal heads at all. They are space helmets. And those horns you see? Those aren't horns, but antennae. <laughs> So, from this point forward in the book, every time a god is depicted as having horns, he just, he goes and he calls the horns antennae. It's like, there's another example of a god with antennae. There's another example of a god with antennae. Well, he has imagination. It's just seriously stunted. <laughs> so, we're talking, like, antennae like you might find on the spacesuit of an astronaut on the cover of a pulp sci-fi novel. Could primitive imagination have produced anything so remarkably similar to a modern astronaut in his rocket? 
Modern. (laughs) Maybe not, but his imagination certainly seems up to the task. I find this obsession with antennae so delightfully quaint because it is such a relic of, like, this golden age sci-fi vision of what a spaceman would look like. (laughs) (laughs) Like, thinking about it now, what are the odds of an advanced spacefaring race adorning their, like, big bulbous helmets with protuberant antennae? Like, percent. They're unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> Astronauts today don't have antennae sticking out of their helmets. We got them off our cell phones, finally. They're, they're <laughs> fragile. They get caught on everything. They look silly. <laughs> we don't have interstellar travel, but we don't even have them, as you mentioned, on our cell phones anymore. <laughs> okay, so, so let's talk about the Maya briefly. Von Daniken presumes that he knows more about what the Maya should have considered important than they did. Obviously. Leaving aside all of the hay that he makes over how accurate and perfect their calendrical system is, because, you know, he assumes that ancient peoples were incapable of any sort of sophisticated thought, he he is surprised that Mayan architecture, for example, doesn't feature more floral motifs. Presumably this is evidence of aliens, I guess. Quote... That is astonishing, for one would have expected a people surrounded by luxuriant rampant flora to leave flower motifs behind on their stone reliefs as well. Astonishing? Really? Flowers are hard to carve, dude. <laughs> Such They're hubris. Not, maybe not important for some people. <laughs> but you're forgetting, Laura, that he knows better than the Maya what right, the Maya ought to have right. used to decorate their structures. Obviously. I'm so mistaken here. He's dismayed instead to find the veneration of the snake and confused that any mythological interpretation of an animal would have characteristics that the real animal itself lacks. From time immemorial, the snake has wound its way through the dust and dirt of the earth. Why should anyone conceive of endowing it with the ability to fly? Primeval image of evil, the snake is condemned to crawl. So you'll also note that he seems to be using Christian symbolism to interrogate Mayan mythology. <laughs> yeah, he, he views everything through that really Judeo-Christian lens of history. <laughs> but what about Samuel L. Jackson? <laughs> Gotta get these yeah. mother flipping snakes off this Monday to Friday play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Von Daniken uh, cites are, are you folks familiar with the Iron Pillar of Delhi? Yes. No, I am not. No. I'll just quote what Von Daniken has to say about it. Um, he cites the Iron Pillar of Delhi as evidence of extraterrestrial intervention. In the courtyard of a temple in Delhi, there exists, as I have already mentioned, a column made of welded iron parts that has been exposed to weathering for more than 4,000 years without showing a trace of rust. Yep, that looks like a pillar. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. That pillar is 4,000 years old. Thereabouts. Like, truly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. The problem, though, uh, is that it is not actually free of rust at all. (laughs) (laughs) So this uh, has actually been, uh, it has been understood uh, how the pillar was created and uh, what its properties were for for quite some time. In 2000, R. Balasubramaniam from the Department of Materials and Metallurgical Engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology reported that the pillar's remarkable resistance to corrosion is actually a result of the way rust occurs, forming what is called a passive protective film over the surface of the pillar. 
When a reporter for Playboy confronted Von Daniken with the fact that the pillar was not, in fact, rust-free, as he had claimed, and that the way in which it had been constructed was well understood, Von Daniken admitted that he no longer considered the pillar to be mysterious. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, on the one hand, good for him. But the problem is, when you look closely at the details, pretty much every one of his claims evaporates in exactly the same way. It's also worth noting, though, that this interview happened in the 70s, I believe, and all recent editions of Cherries of the Gods still include the claims about the Delhi Pillar. He admits that it's false, but he's not going to go and fix it. And the book has gone through revisions. Just not to remove spurious claims, because, you know, you still need a book. (laughs) (laughs) Von Daniken actually uh, quite rightly... (laughs) points out that while his hypotheses about uh, these ancient visitations are unproven, they hold up at least as well as most religious claims. <laughs> which, which is something that I generally appreciate. And his attitude throughout, it, like he gives lip service to scientific investigation and having an open mind. Uh, unfortunately, I think he is not uh, exceptionally skeptical. <laughs> What, what makes mildly. you think that, Jem? Uh, Alien. Aliens. <laughs> Turning to the Hebrew Bible, Von Daniken offers the Genesis plurals as evidence that the God of the Bible isn't what he seems to be. In many passages in Genesis, Yahweh refers to himself as we or us and uses the plural Elohim instead of the singular form of that word. According to Von Daniken, this is evidence that Yahweh is actually, of course, a race of extraterrestrials. But surprisingly enough, theologians and biblical scholars have offered several other explanations for the Genesis plurals that don't involve aliens. Any guesses? Uh, Is it like in some of the romantic languages where for somebody in a position of authority, you use like the vous instead of the tu? Like yeah, it's, it's like that. So, so that is one of the possible explanations. That's also that actually is present in English, uh, but it, it is not used. It used to be present, you know, with uh, thee and thou uh, were the singular versions, and you was the plural version, hmm. uh, and you was used in the same way as vous uh, in in French. Well, we have y'all uh, and all y'all now, right? Uh, but you also you, you we still have a remnant of that in current English in the form of the royal we. That's what I was right? going to suggest. And yeah. so, so that's that's one of the uh, one of the explanations. It could also be that uh, God is speaking as the Holy Trinity, although this is unlikely because it requires reading the Hebrew Bible with the New Testament in mind, which right. is a scholarly no-no. Yeah. Uh, it could also be a holdover from an earlier Babylonian myth uh, involving multiple gods, because we know that many of the Old Testament works were heavily influenced by uh, Babylonian mythology. And uh, God could also be speaking not only of himself, but also of the heavenly host, which would include angels and the like. I'll I'll link to a a discussion of this issue on the excellent religioustolerance.org, in case listeners would like to read further. Von Anakin uh, discusses the uh, flood story uh, at length, and he seems to think that the flood was a punishment from the aliens, and it did actually occur, and he says it's, it is well backed up with lots of evidence that the flood occurred. Uh, I, I don't know, it is not clear from the text whether he is talking about just a small flood in the Mediterranean area, which is pretty well attested, or if he is talking about a global flood, which is, shall we say, less well attested. (laughs) Uh, 
But he uh, he thinks that that is either a punishment from the extraterrestrials for bad behavior or an attempt on the part of the extraterrestrials to wipe out the non-uplifted humans like the original stock. <laughs> but either way, he also notes the parallels between the Old Testament version of the Flood and the f- version found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a, like right down to similar phrasing in certain parts. Although precisely which translations you're looking at will likely have a lot to do with how similar the phrasing is, because these two works were not written in the same original language and have now been translated into English. So I'm assuming he's going from the English... Well, English he's, he might be going from Swiss or German. Um, uh, Chariots of the Gods was not originally written in English. Yeah, it was written in German, I thought. Um, and his, his editor had a lot of control over, over the final, final text. Uh, so uh, he posits that the similarities between the stories are due somehow to an alien influence, which, of course, he also claims is responsible for, for the flood itself, uh, instead of the mainstream scholarly view that Moses' account of Noah's flood was cribbed from, again, an earlier Babylonian source. Uh, so I'll link, again, to an essay on the subject from religioustolerance.org in the show notes. But speaking of the Epic of Gilgamesh, Von Daniken is very impressed at how accurate the description of the world as found in the epic is because, uh, of course, no humans could see the world from above uh, at that time without the aid of spaceships and satellites. So it couldn't have been so accurate. I I will quote the passage in which this occurs. Look down at the land. What does it look like? Look at the sea. How does it seem to you? And the land looked like porridge, and the sea like a water trough. In this case... Uh, And this is Von Daniken now. In this case, some living creature must have seen the earth from a great height. The account is too accurate to have been the product of pure imagination. Too accurate. The too accurate accurate part was the fact that the sea looked like a water trough, and the land looked like porridge. That's the accurate part. Oh, what? <laughs> I can see that without going up into an airplane. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to Egypt. This is the big one, right? Um, aliens built the pyramids because the Egyptians certainly couldn't have. And today is a good day, because today I get to quote Carl Sagan. <laughs> Sagan himself gets, by my count, three name checks in Chariots of the Gods, and uh, they're all... Von Daniken was a big fan of Sagan's, uh, because he Sagan had said some things earlier in his career that Von Daniken was very fond of playing around with. But uh, Sagan, as you might imagine, didn't think particularly highly of Chariots of the Gods. What? So did they have, like, a an old-timey flame war? You know, it... Can I just imagine that instead of you saying no? <laughs> I would <laughs> like to like, say yes. Like Alexander Hamilton and, uh, and, and Aaron, Aaron Burr, Burr style? <laughs> That'd be pretty awesome. I am not a fan of those epic rap battles of history, but I would like to see one between Eric Von Daniken and Carl Sagan. Sagan actually didn't respond directly to a lot of the things that Von Daniken uh, attributed to him in the book, uh, which I'll, I'll, I'll cover one of those uh, a little bit later. But uh, he did respond to the thrust of Von Daniken's um, argument, and this won't be the only Sagan quote we get here. From the Varieties of Scientific Experience. Here is Von Daniken's approach to the pyramids of Egypt. I'm not going to do a Sagan impression because as delightful as it is, uh, as delightful as his cadence is, I, I can't do it justice. The pyramids of Egypt, he said, are constructed of individual blocks, rectangular parallelopipeds, 
each of which weighs 20 tons or thereabouts. 20 tons, he says. That's extremely heavy. Individual persons could not lift a 20-ton block, much less many of them, to make a pyramid. Therefore, modern construction equipment is necessary, and in 2000 to 3000 BC, that could only be of extraterrestrial manufacture. Hence, extraterrestrials exist. Now, we can recognize that this argument neglects certain facts. If we knew nothing of Egyptian archaeology, we could nevertheless imagine ways in which large numbers of people could build massive edifices. And then when we look at the internal evidence, or even read Herodotus, who alluded to Egyptian pyramid construction techniques, we find that there is an entirely self-consistent and perfectly natural explanation. In fact, there are many, some of which involve sending rafts up the Nile and rollers to move the blocks and the removal of underlying material. There are even inscriptions on a few key blocks that say the equivalent of, my goodness, we did it, which seems an unlikely delight in modest construction by some being who had effortlessly traveled through interstellar space. Yeah. <laughs> And we know that the first pyramid that was ever constructed fell down, and that the second pyramid, halfway through construction, had the angle of the sides dramatically paired because they had learned from the example of the first one that fell down. Again, an error of exceeding the angle of repose was unlikely to be made by an extraterrestrial spacefaring civilization. Although, in von Daniken's uh, opinion, uh, and I'll quote him here, Today, in the 20th century, no architect could build a copy of the Pyramid of Cheops, even if the technical resources of every continent were at his disposal. Uh-huh. Has he seen Vegas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in case, like Sagan, you're still skeptical of the extraterrestrial origin of the pyramids, perhaps we should consider all of the hidden knowledge encoded in those pyramids, information that the Egyptians couldn't possibly have had access to without extraterrestrial guidance. For example, is it really a coincidence that the height of the Pyramid of Cheops multiplied by a thousand million, 98 million miles, corresponds approximately to the distance between the Earth and Sun? If I times a number by another number and then it does a number, no, another number? That's pretty cool. <laughs> but that's also just basic math. So, to, to answer his hypothetical, yes, that is a coincidence. And not much of one, to be frank. <laughs> um, it, it also doesn't help that he gets pretty much all of the figures wrong. <laughs> I happened to double-check them. According to the most recent estimates I could find, the height of the Great Pyramid comes out to 139 meters. Multiplied by 1 billion, or 1,000 million in the long-scale notation von Daniken uses, that comes out to 139 million kilometers, or about 86.4 million miles, not the 98 million miles von Daniken claims. His numbers are off by 12%. That's not, that's not even approximately accurate. But that's irrelevant because we're also not 98 million miles from the sun. In fact, the average distance between the Earth and the sun is about 93 million miles. But he that's continues. That's really close, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's only a few million that's, miles off. Yeah, yeah. margin of error, right? Yeah. F five million miles is <laughs> easy I margin of error to make. Five million <laughs> miles. Is it also a coincidence? He goes on to note that the rocky ground on which the structure stands was carefully and accurately leveled? <laughs> we did the same thing before putting blocks in our side yard. Yeah. yeah. No, no, because they're building a big thing there. That's not a coincidence. That's a building a big thing. <laughs> what else are you going to do? I think 
Von Daniken is just proving that he is not an alien because he can't fathom any of these things. He's picturing Egyptians like the apes in front of the monolith in 2001 A Space He must be. Must be. We have sticks. This is all. If only the alien intelligences had uh, had, uh, come by to help him with this book, maybe he would have got some of his figures right. Uh, Yeah. uh, Also... Is it a coincidence that calculations of the weight of the Earth were found... Okay, look. Let's try something. Let's pick a totally arbitrary number. Let's say the length of the room that we are recording in. This room is 8.1 meters long. Multiply that by 1.5, and you'll get the average height of an adult giraffe! That can't uh, possibly be a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> multiply, multiply the length of this room by 300 million, and you will have the length of the moon's orbit around the Earth. Imagine you had that much space in here. <laughs> multiply the length of this room by 500 million, and you'll have the equatorial circumference of the sun. Well, it's actually closer to 550 million, but Von Daniken didn't get the numbers right, so... Why should we? We don't need to either. (laughs) Sure, one billion, multiplying by one billion might seem rounder uh, than multiplying by 300 or 500 or 550 million. But then again, we're using a decimal system of numbers, which is totally arbitrary, and we have no reason to believe that aliens would use the same. I mean, the ancient Maya didn't, and, you know, they got their numbering system from aliens, right? So, in terms of the ancient Mayans, a pyramid that was one one thousand millionth the height uh, of the distance between the Earth and the Sun would not be uh, particularly significant. Um, so, so sure, the Egyptians did kind of use a decimal system, not really. They tended to round to orders of magnitude of 10. But uh, the, the Mayans didn't. And it seems weird that an extraterrestrial civilization that influenced both the Egyptians and the Mayans gave them totally different numeric systems, and the Egyptians' one was not very good, to be, to be honest. Was it, wait, are we sure that it's all the same aliens, though? Or is it different aliens that came and populated different parts of the world? Well, actually, uh, some of his claims, yeah, mind blown. Mind blown, guys, mind blown. Uh, We have opened this wide open. (laughs) uh, Some of his claims actually kind of rest on the idea that that his explanation... uh, uh, is simpler, so we don't want to start positing additional entities unless we have to. But who uh, were the bastards that invented the imperial system? Oh, uh, that's a good question. That was that was that was the after English? after the uh, <laughs> the aliens left. Yeah. So the point is, if you sift through enough random noise, eventually you will find something. I spent five minutes coming up with those numbers, and I'm sure I could have found something much more impressive if I put in the time. I bet you spent more time looking for a tape measure to measure this room. No, tape measure's right there. I know where my tape measures are at all times. Remember, Emerging. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> I was going to say, in his impeccably organized toolbox. That's, that's weird. Those aren't supposed to be organized, Jim. No. It goes to show how often things get used in there. I I, I use those I all the time. The only reason I am not currently reaffixing the, the crank t- uh, on my bicycle pedal is because I have to record a podcast. Von Anakin is also overly <laughs> impressed. Uh, speaking of speaking the... of cranks? <laughs> <laughs> but <Ba-ching. laughs> My segue is going to be uh, speaking of the Mayans and the Egyptians, but that works too. Uh, Von Daniken is overly impressed when different mythic traditions tell stories with details that are superficially similar. 
Traditions telling almost the same story come from the four corners of the world and from innumerable sources. Did all their authors have the same bee in their bonnet? Were they all haunted by the same phenomenon? Or, perhaps, among millions of stories, you have managed to piece together a few coincidences or common themes, which is precisely what we would expect by random chance and a large uh, library of stories from civilizations around the world. This is confirmation bias at its worst, for when gods from different pantheons are described differently, he doesn't make anything of it. Even if the reporter in the remote past may have exaggerated a story with fanciful trimmings, much as newsmen do today, there's another bee in his bonnet. The actual incident still remains at the core of all exclusive accounts as it does today. How did anyone come to describe a lamp from which a magician spoke when the owner wished? What daring imagination invented the open sesame incident in the tale of Alibaba and the Forty Thieves? Certain things cannot be made up. <laughs> what? Yes, yes yeah. they can. I, I continue to be baffled by Von Daniken's assumption that there is always some kernel of truth to be found if you dig far enough, and that wholesale fancy is impossible somehow. His core premise seems to be that creativity and imagination don't exist. Yeah, not possible. You can't just make up something ridiculous like a flying pig, or flying snake even. Uh, he also claims, based on really vague outlines, that rock paintings in one region will show animals that are not native to that region. Outline drawings of animals which simply did not exist in South America 10,000 years ago, namely camels and lions, were found on the rocks of the desert plateau in Marcahuasi, 12,500 feet above sea level. This provides evidence of really crappy what? drawers? Exactly is not clear. Was there like a, like does he think there was some alien zoo in Marikahuasi? Maybe an animal exchange program between the continents, intercontinental sightseeing tours furnished by the extraterrestrial overlords? I hope it's that one. We're, we're getting into Vonnegut territory here. <laughs> yes. So Traffaldorians had that. Yeah. Like the antenna claims, these are readily explained by pareidolia and priming on Von Daniken's part. Similarly, he reads religious texts and sees evidence of helicopters and rocket belts and hydrogen bombs. When all you have is a space alien, suddenly everything looks like an antenna. Uh, he... He doesn't use the term Occam's razor, but uh, as I alluded to earlier, he does try to turn the principle of parsimony around on us. We see all of these paintings from all over the world, but archaeologists would have you believe that they all represent different things. Fantastical creatures, flying men, animal gods, how ridiculous. I say, and I'm paraphrasing here with a little creative license, I say that they all represent the same thing. Much simpler, much more likely. It was aliens. <laughs> aliens. So, what do you think yeah. about that, uh, that? That does have some sort of, like, internal logic anyway. Like, Everything was aliens. But it's kind of like saying, fire inspectors claim that fires are sometimes caused by different things. Wiring problems, cooking oil, lightning of all things. I claim that all fires are caused by the laser beams of alien spacecraft. Much simpler. <laughs> you know... Occam's razor doesn't work like that. It's not like you, you not? try to posit as few entities as possible, and that is definitely because he is raising way more questions than he is answering here. I like the extra H in there. Way more. <laughs> but this did actually get me thinking. With all these modern elements appearing in myths from the past, 
isn't it astonishing that we don't ever see an example of truly alien technology? Technology that we don't have access to ourselves today, or that we we don't find in, you know, golden age sci-fi stories? It's all stuff that right now we understand, at, at least the things that are discussed by Von Daniken. That underlines what I see as Von Daniken's true process here. It's a sort of mythic pareidolia in which he simply attempts to match modern technologies familiar to him to the inexplicable happenings that appear in these myths. It's the grossest form of hyperactive pattern matching. He seems astonished that any ancient people could believe in bodily resurrection, because, you know, that's not really what, I guess, Mm -hmm. he was taught. I I believe he was Catholic growing up. Von Daniken views this, like everything else, as evidence of alien intervention. Like, obviously, in the Bible, you have a couple of stories of bodily resurrection, but it's a spiritual afterlife. But we see very well-preserved, mummified remains in Egypt. We have uh, Incan ice mummies as well. So, so he claims that this is evidence of alien intervention, the fact that we have bodily resurrection ideas in these myths. Whether it's that aliens promised to resurrect their chosen when they returned, or whether it's that these people saw that the alien overlords were really long-lived and the belief grew up as a cargo cult belief, Von Daniken doesn't really make that clear. But according to him, Glacier mummies left by the Incas survived the ages, and theoretically they are capable of living. What? (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Like, I guess he thinks you could thaw them out and they'd be alive again? Is it all mere coincidence? Are they all merely individual fancies, strange whims on the part of our ancestors? Or is there an ancient promise of corporeal return that is unknown to us? Who could have made it? (laughs) Well, first we have to establish that there was one. (laughs) Why is the idea of bodily resurrection so astonishing that he thinks it requires an extraterrestrial origin? Extraterrestrials. I, I have no idea. So, Von Daniken actually considers himself to be a good skeptic. I base the reasons for my skepticism about the interpretation of our remote past on the knowledge that is available today. The positive thing about the skeptic is that he considers everything possible. (laughs) And there's really good skepticism on display when he starts uh, talking about getting back in touch with these aliens. Near the end of the book, he he starts on uh, quite a long diatribe about UFOs. I myself do not know what UFOs are. I do not say that they have been proved to be flying objects belonging to unknown intelligences, although there could be little objection to such supposition. Let us assume that 98% of the people who claimed that they've seen UFOs actually saw ball lightning, weather balloons, strange cloud formations, new unknown types of aircraft, or even odd effects of light and shade in the sky at twilight. Undoubtedly, too, many people were the victims of mass hysteria. If we reject all the crackpots, liars, hysterics, and sensation mongers, there still remains a sizable group of sober observers, including people whose job makes them familiar with celestial phenomena. (laughs) But that's only if you assume that the 98% figure that Von Daniken produced out of thin air is the accurate figure. It's arbitrary. (laughs) Yeah. We have no good reason to believe that it is. The figure is almost certainly 100%. And I actually think... We should do a show on UFOs at some point. I don't think that we have dedicated an entire show to them, but there are so, no. there are no. some really interesting anecdotes that we can dive into. I got books. <laughs> but Von Daniken's 
basic claim here is that all those people who have cited UFOs couldn't possibly be wrong. Name that logical fallacy. Oh, um... Argument from popularity? No. Yeah, argument yeah. argument from hey! popularity. <laughs> That's an ad populum, um, folks. So presumably, he's a believer in all manner of psychic, religious, and cryptozoological phenomena as well. Because if there are that many people who believe it, it must be true, right? Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt, 100%. So von Daniken, understandably, given his convictions longs to be in contact with these extraterrestrial intelligences. But he explains, quite rightly, that uh, this would be difficult due to the fact that radio transmissions are constrained by the speed of light. Civilizations situated at distances reckoned in millions of light years are quite unsuitable to contact by means of radio waves. But are radio waves our only technical means of making such attempts? Yes, for right now. For example, we could make ourselves optically noticeable. A powerful laser beam directed at Mars or Jupiter could not remain unnoticed. One audacious but perfectly realizable idea, a gigantic equilateral triangle, would have its 600-mile-long sides sewn with potatoes. In this enormous triangle, a circle would be sewn with wheat. In this way, a vast yellow circle surrounded by a green equilateral triangle would appear every summer. Incidentally, a most useful and productive experiment. Wait, wait a but, minute, wait a but minute. But if there are unknown intelligences that seek us as we seek them, the coloring of circle and triangle would be a hint to them that these shapes were no freaks of nature. Someone has also advocated erecting a chain of lighthouses which radiate their lights vertically. The resultant sea of light could be arranged to have the shape of the model of an atom. The phrase that stuck out to me the most was... That the giant laser from Earth to Mars could not go unnoticed. Like, in the <laughs> scheme of the galaxy, yeah. a tiny little line between two planets is nothing. Yep. And that's entirely assuming that these aliens are from within our own solar system. He, he, he gets into that. But the, the thing, oh, the thing that uh, of course he does, of course he does. The thing that struck me, uh, that struck me most about this is that he starts out like uh, several of these quotations have a few ellipses thrown in because this is already getting long. Um, <laughs> but uh, he goes directly from talking about how radio waves are unsuitable for uh, communicating with civilizations millions of light years away. And then immediately proposes lasers or just potatoes. Well, we already have giant. We already have giant physical structures. The things that we talked about that apparently these aliens built have not attracted them back at all. But not, so neither to grow potatoes. Neither lasers nor visible light travel any faster than radio waves. First of all, so this wouldn't be any more successful in contacting far-flung races than radio. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, they, they're all constrained by the speed of light. Radio waves travel just as fast as light. Because it's all part of the... Ra radio wave, yeah, it's all electromagnetic radiation. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. I don't know. It just doesn't... Yep. Visible light, lasers. Yep. Yeah, they seem like separate things, yeah. but they're all just part of the same oh, big well. thing. <laughs> if we light the torches, Rohan doesn't always come. <laughs> <laughs> so, you'll notice that, as Laura pointed out, Von Daniken also seems to be sure that there are alien intelligences much closer to home. Aliens. Uh, as I mentioned, Carl Sagan gets three name checks in the book, and this is one of them. According to Von Daniken, 
Sagan was convinced that the Martian moon of Phobos was an artificial satellite, and Sagan said so in a book he co-authored in 1966. Sagan came to the conclusion that Phobos must be hollow, and a hollow moon cannot be natural. So it's unclear from von Daniken's text whether von Daniken is attributing the claim that a hollow moon cannot be natural to Sagan, or if the that conclusion is von Daniken's own and Sagan just said that it was hollow, leaving the implications of that up to the reader. But the book in question, Intelligent Life in the Universe, was actually originally published four years earlier by Russian astrophysicist Yosef Semyonovich Shklovsky under the title Universe Life Intelligence, and Sagan wasn't credited as a co-author until the 1966 edition. The speculation that Phobos was hollow was actually a result of its low mass and unusual orbit. But we now know that the low density of Phobos is best attributed not to the fact that it's hollow, but to the fact that, like many large asteroids, it's probably what's known as a rubble pile, held together by uh, its mutual gravity. And its orbital peculiarities are a result of tidal interactions that were, at the time at the time this book was written, difficult to model. It's almost the one that's shaped like a potato. Yeah. Near or far, von Daniken has hoped to offer that we can communicate with these extraterrestrials today. Are we tackling the problem the wrong way by limiting ourselves to the kind of means suggested above? Potatoes and the like? <laughs> However skeptical or antipathetic we may be to everything occult, we cannot avoid looking into some as yet inexplicable physical phenomena. For example, the thought transference between intelligent brains that is proved on a broad scientific basis but not yet explained. Mm-hmm. Yep, he thinks we should try to contact the aliens via telepathy. Sweet, let's get on that. How does telepathy work, by the way? Any guesses? Von Daniken has an explanation. Aliens. Uh, thought waves, which would probably not travel any faster than light. And I quote, It is known that only one-tenth of the cortex functions in the brain of a healthy man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Though rather than spending a lot of time... That that is not true. That's just the the 10% of the brain myth, which we must have covered several times by by now. It is known. Uh, Yeah, it It is is known. known. (laughs) Rather than spending a lot of time debunking thought transference, etc., I'll simply refer our listeners back to episode 106 of the podcast, where we talk about parapsychology in some detail. (laughs) So let's, let's wrap up. I want to know first, has Von Daniken weighed in on Proxima B? Oh, oh God. Uh, not as far as I know. Probably by now. I couldn't find any quotes. I wasn't sure if you had found something. No. Proxima B, for those uh, who are unaware, is the the Earth-like, meaning I, rocky planet. I'm just calling it the M-class planet. Yeah, the M-class planet. Proxima B is uh, the recently discovered rocky planet in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri, which is actually the closest star to the sun. Now, it has not been directly imaged at this point. Uh, It was discovered via the wobble method, where we can see the way in which uh, its uh, orbit uh, causes a a wobble in its parent star. However, uh, it it would hypothetically be the, uh, the closest habitable exoplanet. Closest right? possible habitable yeah. exoplanet, which is really cool. Yeah. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll check back in. Yeah. I went looking, but yeah. there's been nothing published that he's said anything, so... So, uh, let's, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, the book clearly shows its age. Uh, 
Uh, and with the benefit of distance, we can observe something interesting. Time and again, von Daniken observes how perfectly well ancient structures and passages in holy books match our new uh, scientific understanding of the world. Surely these ancient peoples must have had advanced knowledge. But then, today, we see that many of these theories, including uh, the theory of lunar formation by Holbiger's theory of satellites, for example, we see these theories discarded. And this makes it all the more obvious that von Daniken was simply trying to fit pieces of the past uh, into the worldview of his day. The book is kind of the fallacy of presentism through and through. As one of his opening gambits, von Daniken asks, Isn't it possible that things which ought not to exist do in fact exist? Of course it is. But don't confuse it's possible for it's likely or it's true. Is the idea impossible? No. Is the idea unlikely? Yes. Given what we know about the universe, there is good reason to believe that interstellar travel is infeasible, and it is incredibly unlikely that we have been visited by extraterrestrial intelligences. But most importantly in my mind, is the idea unnecessary? <laughs> yes. It has no additional explanatory power, and here Occam's razor can do the rest. I'll give Carl Sagan the last word here, again quoting from the Varieties of Scientific Experience. Fundamentally, what von Daniken has done is sell our ancestors short. To assume that people who lived a few thousand years ago, or even a few hundred years ago, were simply too stupid to figure anything out. Certainly to work together for a long period of time to construct something of monumental dimensions. And yet people a few hundred or a few thousand years ago were no less intelligent than we are no less able. Perhaps in some ways, they were better able to work together. That's it. That's Chariots of the Gods. I cut so much out of this segment, folks. <laughs> I looked up halfway through my read of that damn book and found that I had more than 50 margin notes. So, and I made myself stop, and I, I cut a lot of them. I could have gone on for hours, but... It was a fun, infuriating read. I think fun and infuriating sums up, yeah, all of your posts about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to Scientology. Another infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Lauren, why don't you tell us about the Thetans? I'm really proud of the title of my segment, so I'm just going to say it out loud. The Extraterrestrial Sacraments of Select Authoritarian For-Profit Belief Systems. <laughs> <laughs> nice, I like it. We're going to cover a little bit more than Scientology. Just a little bit. I feel like it needs the, um, the law and order. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when Jem announced this topic during our last recording, I got really excited. My fascination with belief systems that ultimately center around extraterrestrial activity is second only to my fascination with lesser known serial killers. And in my list of topics, Lauren knows way too much information about, is not allowed <laughs> to bring up in polite company. <laughs> so fortunately here at LUEE, we don't stand much on ceremony or play tests. So I'm free to indulge in this wonk. <laughs> and I have for several pages. Thanks to the brave work of Lawrence Wallersheim, who sued Scientology in 1983 and used the secret extraterrestrial material as exhibits, we have that information about Scientology and its extraterrestrial sacraments as public record. 
Because Ooh. rank and file Scientologists don't actually have access to that until they reach yeah. like, OT3, right? I get into that. Okay, yeah. sorry. Because it's kind of unusual for a religion to have hidden sacraments like that, right? It's not a religion. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, uh, air quotes. <laughs> It's a for-profit authoritarian belief system. <laughs> did you read the title, Chad? <laughs> no, I did hear Meant it. to enrich a few select individuals. It's essentially a pyramid scheme. Yep. Sounds about right. Yeah. So the information that uh, Wallersheim made public wasn't widely disseminated until 2005. Everybody knows what happened. TV show. Oh, the South Park thing. Yeah. Oh my God! Kenny. The Trapped yeah. in the Closet episode of South Park. Yeah, oh god, I hate South Park so much. You bastard! Yeah, but this episode was great. <laughs> oh, never mind. And they touched on a few things, but we're going to go into it a little bit more in detail today. Scientology was one of the very first, like, YouTube video holes that I fell down. <laughs> uh, Xenu, Xenu.org, I think? Yeah, they're, they're still around, Xenu.org. Yeah. Uh, Operation Clambake, and most of my material... I found on, uh, it's called The Underground Bunker. It's Tony Ortega, his mm, website. Right, right, right. He, yeah. he was the editor for The Village Voice, and he does his own daily updates on Scientology and bringing down this belief system. Those are great places to go, and I'll have links in the show notes for that. Great. So we're going to go into all of the information about all of their extraterrestrial beliefs, not just the operating Thetan, so OT3, Wall of Fire, as they call it, but also OT2, which is even weirder, in my opinion, and it brings <laughs> you in, <laughs> brings you into OT3. First, I'd like to do a short aside about how Scientologists can believe this stuff. While the space opera malarkey may be someone outside of Scientology's first or perhaps only exposure to the group, for someone inside, to reach a level where you are allowed to hear this information takes years of indoctrination and more likely hundreds and thousands of dollars. And they only hear it after they've gone clear. That is, spend years inducing a hypnotic state to remove all instances of bad memories that keep them stuck in the past and unable to realize their full potential, at least according to the founder, L. Ron Hubbard, who's a lying, fearful bloviate who based Dianetics and Scientology on hypnotic tricks and the works of Aleister Crowley, among others. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm not going to hold back. So picture this, like Sophia Petrillo here. <laughs> picture this. You're broke. You're unable to discuss your case or your progress with anyone for fear of being written up and called in to do expensive security checks. And everyone who is above you in levels tells you that this information you're going to hear is amazing without providing info as to why, because they're in the same boat as you and can't say anything about why it's so exciting. So this is an emperor's new clothes kind of... Yeah. <laughs> You've spent the last decade or so learning to talk to ashtrays, and have made all of the problems of this lifetime zap away through auditing and hypnosis. Your family is also heavily involved in Scientology. All of your friends are involved because you don't have time to associate with non-Scientologists anymore. You spend most of your non-working hours either studying, volunteering, or working at the local Scientology org or mission. Your whole world is Scientology. You've gone through all of these tests, you've gone through everything, and after being told that you are finally ready, you find out that we are immortal beings, that have lived since the beginning of the galaxy, galaxy in Hubbard's terms, and that said galaxy is much, much, much older than you thought, and you need to clear out all of the bad memories implanted from all of your previous lives, which is called your whole track, as your next step. These implants are thought control incidents that we are all subjected to that confuse us and hold us back from our full potential. These were implanted by evil psychiatrists millions and billions of years ago. 
that, that is my favorite part. Not not just the fact that L. Ron Hubbard has a hate on for or had a hate on for psychiatry. The fact that he actually made it evil psychiatrists from the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's yeah. so it's so transparently vindictive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes, and this is from P.Z. Myers. Uh, when he was reading uh, Hubbard's A History of Man for Tony Ortega's website. Uh-huh. So I'm just going to quote from that. So he's saying, The first sentence is utter nonsense. This is a cold-blooded and factual account of your last 76 trillion years. Our lineage has only existed for 5 to 6 million years. The Earth has only existed for 4.5 billion years. The universe is about 14 billion years old. If he's referring to humanity, he's overshot the mark by seven orders of magnitude. (laughs) If he means the entire history of the universe, he's off by more than three orders of magnitude. It's a rather wild miss to guess the universe is 5,000 times older than it actually is. To put that in context... When creationists estimate that the world was created only 6,000 years ago, they're also off by about seven orders of magnitude. So Hubbard's error is comparable to the creationist error, but in the opposite direction. So going back to the OT2 material, all, all of your past lives have had these implants put in by evil psychiatrists since the beginning of time. Evil psychiatrists that yeah. couldn't possibly have existed. <laughs> so do you believe it? So do you believe it after you have your whole life as Scientology? Well, for some, it doesn't matter. Some people, of course, have this as their line in the sand moment. And they can't believe it, won't believe it, and stop coming to sessions and slowly drift away from Scientology. They may or may not tell anyone that they've left because they don't want to either be pursued by the organization or, in far too many cases, forced to disconnect from friends and family who are still adhering to Scientology. Yeah. So the ones who stay, though, can also be divided into a couple of camps. There are, of course, the true believers who take Hubbard's space opera at face value, believe it, and begin to audit away all the implants in an attempt to clear their whole track. There are also those with doubts who stay. Many have since left Scientology talk about segmenting their minds. So they know this stuff can't be real, but for their own reasons, they want to or have to continue on. And that's when they hit the wall of fire. I would imagine that's kind of like being a non-believing but still practicing Christian or any other religion, you know, this helps me. It's a community that I like. Uh, you know, whether the the myths are true or not, it's it's still helpful to me. So I so I take what I can get from it. Mm-hmm. But have they spent on average about two hundred thousand dollars to get to this point? Well, then your investment bias starts to yeah, <laughs> that, that's quite a bit of it too. So the Wall of Fire is what they call OT3, or Operating Thetan 3. It's anticipated and dreaded by Scientologists, because the story inside is that you may only learn it when you are ready, otherwise you will get pneumonia and die. You will get pneumonia and die? If you hear the OT3 materials before your brain is ready to absorb them, you will get pneumonia and die. Don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Mary, and don't look at it, no matter what happens. Why specifically pneumonia? That's not even like a brain thing. That's what Hubbard wrote. (laughs) So shouldn't we all be dead then? I've never had pneumonia. I chew. <laughs> I have. It sucked. Yep. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so what is this big pneumonia-inducing secret? The secret is, in addition to these implanted bad memories and incidents that you've just spent over $20,000 and a few years auditing away on OT2, your life force, your operating thetan, is infested with hundreds or thousands of other thetans and all of their accumulated bad juju. So not just all of your own past mistakes going right back to the beginning of history, you have a bunch of other thetans sticking to you, and all of their past stuff. The bad ones are called body thetans? Yeah, BTs, your body thetans. 
These other Thetans are there because over 95 million years ago, an evil space alien overlord named Xenu, or Zimu, depending on which version you read, fought overpopulation by rounding up people from all of the planets that he was the overlord for, and using spaceships that look like DC-8s, <laughs> dumped them into volcanoes onto Gijak, or as we call it, Earth. All of their thetans stuck around here and cling to people, infecting everyone with their hang-ups and implants, as well as the ones that our own thetans are carting around. It's pretty heavy. Oh, God. Of course, 95 million years ago, he said they were dumped into volcanoes on Hawaii. Hawaii didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. So after OT3, where people can get stuck for years, doing all of this expensive auditing, just zapping away all these body thetans. I think it was John Travolta got stuck in it for like five or six years. You can see in some of his auditing pictures, he's still got OT3 on his, <laughs> on his folders. The rest of the OT levels, up to OT8, because that's where Scientology stops, are about zapping away these infecting alien hitchhikers through a variety of different activities. In OT4, you learn about your valence and how to keep all of the information you're learning about these levels not to go poof after you drop your current body and your thetan reports to an implant station on Venus or Mars... That's where we go after we die. Our thetans go to Venus or Mars. And you well, get Anakin in. was right! Yep. Wait, so, wait. Do we go to Venus or Mars based on gender? I was just no. gonna <laughs> I, I think it's just a, a whichever train you happen to get on. Male thetans are from Mars. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the old v- version of OT4. There's an old version and a new version of all of the OT levels. The changeover happened about 1978 or so. You when know, did after Miscavige take control? Uh, well, Hubbard dropped the body in 86, and that's when uh, Miscavige pulled his coup. Uh, but he had been working up in the Sea Org since the 70s. He became an auditor when he was 12. Oh, what? right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this we... was covered in... Um, there was a great documentary that came out last year or the year before that we Going watched. Clear. Going Clear. Mm-hmm. We'll link to that in the show notes. Among I've got things. books and books and websites in the show notes mm-hmm. that we'll go to. It's a, it's a hole to fall down. I bet. So that was the old OT4. I talked about the valence and keeping, your, keeping clear after coming back in your new body so poor little Huxley doesn't have to go through all of his auditing again. <laughs> he can just be certified clear <laughs> if he can prove it. Right. The new version of OT4 says that all of our problems are because we were drug addicts all along our whole track. Right. The psychiatrist got us addicted to drugs. So OT4 now is about zapping away the implants from all the drugs you've done over the past billions of years. Apparently they were well, really good drugs, too. But drugs are physical compounds that have effects on physical systems. How does it affect your thetan? Yeah. <laughs> so drugs stay trapped in your system, in your fat cells, and they go into your brain. And then the... The thetan, like, absorbs the drugs? The thetan gets stuck in the past because all of these drugs were in its system, so it can't move on and become a clear being because it's okay. it's stuck in this drug track. Go on. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in OT5, you, get, you go back and zap these pesky body thetans that you thought you had gotten rid of in OTs 3 and 4, but some have gone clear themselves or exterior, but they're still hanging on to you. So you have to do the entire new process to find all of these little critters. So, they, so they're not bothering you, but you still need to get rid of them. Yeah, because they need to go away. You, you need, need to, to level them. up, Laura. Yeah, pretty much. In OT6, you learn to, to go exterior yourself, mentally visit friends far away, and have them write to you. What? Yeah. Say that again. <laughs> you go exterior from your brain, and you go visit a friend who lives far away, and as proof, you have them write you a letter. You implant it in their brain that they want to write you a letter. 
It's called Inception. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You also learn how to use telepathy to clear away whole clusters of BTs. Oh, body things. Yep. I like to think of it like playing Bust-A-Move, you know, that <laughs> video game, where you shoot all the multicolored balls at the ones hanging and they, they drop like grapes. I like Bust-A-Move. I'm really good at it. <laughs> so I should have been a Scientologist. No. I always wanted to be good at it. I was not. So in OT7, you clean up even more Thetans. Yay! These are the tricky ones. Not only are they clustered, they're in streams. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. You can't cross the streams. They're like proton packs. Don't cross the streams. This level can take many years and requires an invasive security check every six months. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Those are expensive, about $100,000 each. And these are, this is going off a leaked 2001 price list. Oh, yeah. You haven't so seen a price list. It's way more expensive yeah. by now. And so these sec checks are required every six months to make sure that you're not thinking bad things about Scientology or Hubbard. Empty your hands. Don't think of anything. We've only got one shot at this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Finally. Finally, Laura. OT8. It's only available on the free winds. On the what? The free winds. It's a rattle trap, asbestos-filled cruise ship that is the last of Hubbard's naval armada. Uh, Hubbard took to sea, mostly to avoid um, prosecution and... Taxes. taxes. <laughs> and so this is the last vestige of his armada. Why don't they make it better? Like, it's so old. It's not like Scientology's hurting for money, is it? I wish they were. <laughs> but no, thanks to the U.S. government, they don't have to pay taxes in that country. <sighs> like, 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 I understand the United States, with the First Amendment, trying not to get involved in deciding what is and isn't a religion. But come on, guys. Some of these decisions are easy. Yeah. Well, have you read uh, the 1993 uh, Scientology tax um, documents? It's it's basically blackmail. Pretty sure that they blackmailed some tax officials. So, OT8. Almost there. Because Hubbard died. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, the original version, which was released in 1988, which was two years after Hubbard dropped his body to continue his research <laughs> as an unfettered thetan in the sky. That's the actual term. He dropped his body. Just imagine him just, like, hitting the dirt. So the original version, called All Religions Implants for Controlling People, and it referred to Hubbard both as Buddha and as the Antichrist. And it also inferred that Jesus Christ was a pedophile. Oh, God. So this version was quickly disavowed by Scientology. Now the level has you zap the rest of your thetans into oblivion. It seems kind of, kind of, like, inhumane. Yep. So using this leaked 2001 price list and not accounting for any other time spent doing other courses or security checks or being pulled in for whatever reason to redo courses, because that's a big one that they're doing now, you are looking at paying around $500,000 American for this knowledge. There's are there a lot of them? No. They can't possibly be. I would think be. they would only be able to be like three or four. No, because they'll have people um, mortgage their homes and take out credit cards and give all the money on the credit cards to Scientology. You also have some of the some of the bigger stars too. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> sorry, some of the less big stars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's her name? Kirstie Alley. Voice of Bart Simpson. She gave a ten million dollar oh, donation. Um, Nancy. Uh, Nancy. Nancy Cartwright. Cartwright. She gave a ten million dollar donation, and then her uh, fiance gave all of his money to Scientology and jumped off a bridge. Oh. Yeah. It's not a good organization, folks. Uh, so it's $500,000 American for, for the knowledge of becoming OT8 and not including any of the extra stuff. So you're probably looking between $1 and $2 million to get to this level. Ugh, and that is Scientology. Well, minus the human rights abuses and extortions because it's chock full of that. Oh, but Jem asked me to 
condense it down to the, the science. <laughs> yeah, to the aliens. Oh, gosh. In addition to Scientology, I also wanted to quickly touch on the extraterrestrial beliefs of the Nation of Islam. Not the religion of Islam. Right. But the Nation of Islam, which was the NOI, founded in Detroit in 1930 by Wallace Fard Muhammad. Since 2010, their current leader, Louis Farrakhan, has strongly encouraged NOI members to study Dianetics and Scientology, despite what Hubbard had said, wrote, and believed about black people. Uh, which I am not going to get into here. Yeah. I think we can all infer where this is leading. <laughs> yeah. So, NOI beliefs include the mother plane, the will of the sky, as it described in the biblical book, book Ezekiel. Uh, this next part, I can't sum up, so I'm just going to quote directly from Farrakhan, because I can't describe it any other way. So, Farrakhan said, The Honorable Elijah Muhammad told us of a giant mother plane that is made like the universe, spheres within spheres. White people call them unidentified flying objects. Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, saw a wheel that looked like a cloud by day, but a pillar of fire by night. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad said that that wheel was built on the Isle of Nippon, which is now called Japan, by some of the original scientists. It took 15 billion in gold at that time to build it. It is made of the toughest steel. America does not yet know the composition of the steel used to make an instrument like it. It is a circular plane, and the Bible says that it never makes turns. Because of its circular nature, it can stop and travel in all directions at speeds of thousands of miles per hour. He said there are 1,500 small wheels in this mother wheel, which is half a mile by half a mile. This mother wheel is like a small human-built planet. Each one of these small planes carries three bombs. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad said these planes were used to set up mountains on the earth. The Quran says it like this, We have raised mountains on the earth lest it convulse with you. How do you raise a mountain, and what is the purpose of a mountain? Have you ever tried to balance a tire? You use weights to keep the tire balanced. That's how the earth is balanced, with mountain ranges. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad said that we have a type of bomb that, when it strikes the earth, a drill on it is time to go into the earth and explode at the height that you wish the mountain to be. Oh, Lord. If you wish to take the mountain up a mile, you time the drill to go a mile and then explode. The bombs on these planes our time to go one mile down and bring up a mountain one mile high, but it will destroy everything within a 50 square mile radius. The white man writes about it his top secret memos of the UFOs. He sees them around his military installations like they are spying. That mother wheel is a dreadful looking thing. These white folks are making movies now that make these planes look like fiction, but is based on something real. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad said that mother plane is so powerful, with sound reverberating in the atmosphere, just with a sound, she can crumble buildings. I'm, ju I'm imagining this as just the ship from Independence Day. Yeah. <laughs> That's intense. So that was from excerpts from the divine destruction of America. Can she avert it? So the current NOI belief is that Elijah Muhammad did not die, but like Hubbard, he dropped the body. <laughs> so Elijah Muhammad did not die, but he was restored to health and is aboard that huge wheel-like plane that is even now flying over our heads. Straight up science fiction. Wow. And, and what do the two have to do with one another? As of 2010, Louis Farrakhan and Alfredi Johnson have been telling NOI members to take Dianetics and now more recently Scientology courses. And the recent Scientology org or building that opened up in Harlem is run by NOI members. So they are currently enmeshing yeah, their sort of two merging. different... Yeah. Interesting. And most of the new American members of Scientology are NOI members. Huh.
I'm, this is going to be really brief, because it's very sad. But a podcast episode about extraterrestrial belief systems really wouldn't be complete without talking a little bit about the Heaven's Gate group. So Heaven's Gate was founded in the early 1970s by Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. Heaven's Gate members believe that the planet Earth was about to be recycled, as in wiped clean, renewed, refurbished, and rejuvenated. Not as in uh, demolished to make way for a hyperspace bypass. People of Earth, your attention, please. This is prostatic Vogon jokes of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. Kind of pretty much, but not taking out the planet, just everything on it. Genesis device, then. Yeah, Genesis device as opposed to Arthur Dent. Matter is reorganized with life-generating results. Fascinating. So the only chance that we would have to survive was to leave Earth immediately. While the group was formally against suicide, they defined suicide in their own context to mean to turn against the next level when it is being offered, and believe that their human bodies were only vessels meant to help them on their journey. And in most of their writings, they referred to humans as vessels. So, we're the ones who committed suicide. Yeah. So, when the group started in the 70s, Applewhite and Nettles taught their followers that the two of them were extraterrestrials. We could do a whole segment on Applewhite and Nettles, but I just wanted to touch on it briefly today. So, the thought that they were extraterrestrials morphed over the years to include the concept of walk-ins, when that became very popular in the right. the alt-religion. What? Sorry? Walk-ins. walk-ins. So, walk-ins... Um, are alien beings who have walked in and taken over the bodies. Oh, kind of, kind of like an alien version of possession. I see. <laughs> so your soul is no longer yours. You are now an alien wearing your skin. Right, okay. There's a Lovecraft story about it, too. Yeah. And uh, in, in the comics, Thor is essentially a walk-in. Yeah. So Nettles died in the 80s or early 90s, I believe it was of cancer. In 1997, Applewhite convinced his remaining followers that the aliens were coming to pick them up. And their spaceship was behind the Hale-Bopp comet. If anybody remembers, Hale-Bopp was the big comet that we could see in the sky in 97. Yeah, and I it remember. Was, it was like green. Zoom. Yeah, it was beautiful and it was amazing. And then we heard about Heaven's Gate. So Applewhite and 38 of his followers t- took phenobarbital mixed with applesauce. They washed it down with vodka. And then they placed plastic bags over their heads to asphyxiate themselves while they died of a drug overdose. Thorough. Wow. Yeah. They were all wearing... Black sweatpants, sweatshirts, and white Nikes. They had they each had a five dollar bill to cover expenses and three quarters to pay for phone calls in their pockets when they died. It's very specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who who were they paying this money to? They were paying it to the aliens or aliens accept fiat currency. From... Yes. Okay. We're just leaving All it. All right. This is what they believed. Uh, one member stayed alive and. Uh, videotaped the whole thing. The U.S. Uh, authorities didn't see the videotape until 2002. Hmm. Uh, other members took um, other members committed suicide at later dates as well. They believed that the 38 were they, there was three shifts that oh, okay. each committed suicide at a certain time, hmm. and then they were all then they were all gone. And among the dead was Thomas Nichols, who was the brother of Star Trek's Nichelle Nichols. Oh right. Yeah. So that was Heaven's Gate. So that's where the alien belief can take you. Okay, well. 
So why don't you tell us about the Raelians, Ashley? Yeah, the Raelians. I I got handed the Raelians because they're a new agey sex cult. <laughs> <laughs> no, also because I think they're fascinating. Uh, they were founded by a guy named Claude Maurice Marcel Vorilhon. He ran away from his school as a young boy and uh, sang on the streets of Paris for a few years before being mentored uh, by a guy called Lucien Maurice. And so I'm curious what happened in between when he ran away from the school that his parents put him in and getting picked up by this guy. Like, his parents didn't try and find him and get him back. Anyway, these are other questions I have. So this Lucien guy was a director of a radio program, and he was looking for young, new talent. (laughs) Claude got a couple of singles on the air, including one called uh, Honey and Cinnamon, uh, which is apparently not unknown. And then Maurice passed away, and Claude was sort of left at loose ends. Uh, So he decided that he was going to follow his second big dream, uh, which was to try and get into the auto racing industry. He always wanted to uh, race fast cars, and when he was on the radio, he was saving up his money to buy a race car. Uh, So his sort of end round uh, to get into this industry was to start getting into sports journalism. Uh, He eventually founded a racing magazine called Autopop, and that released its first issue in 1971. Uh, Fast forward a couple of years, and in 1973, Claude claims that he had an alien visitation. The date of the visitation was December 13th, and that is now Aurelian holiday, one of the four dates on which you can be baptized as Aurelian. There's only four days in the whole year that you can have a baptism ceremony, and it always takes place at 3 p.m. local time. It's very... Regimented. Observe daylight saving time. I have no idea. Probably. Local time. So whatever, Whatever, whatever your local time is. Okay, it, that <laughs> there proves that the Raelianism is nonsense. <laughs> Over a series of visits, uh, these aliens, who he refers to as the Elohim, which is a term go. we have uh, mm-hmm. come across already told him a magnificent story about how 25,000 years ago, highly advanced scientists came to Earth and had laboratories where, through genetic manipulation, they were able to create humans in their image. Independent confirmation of uh, Eric von Däniken's claims. <laughs> of course, yeah. And because these aliens created us in their image, you know, obviously they're exactly like us. Mm-hmm. That, that's a really good shorthand. You know, it's really good that we just we can just... Assume all of their motives, assume all of their everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, The first laboratory that these Elohim created was near Jerusalem, and this becomes important later. Uh, The Elohim told Claude that there have been many prophets sent throughout the years, including uh, folks like Jesus, uh, the Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, and a few dozen others. Don't forget Joseph Smith. <laughs> throw, throw in Joseph Smith there. Well, apparently something like 8% of Raelians were originally part of the LDS church. It's like one of the big I believe places that. Yeah. that they get converts from. It kind of conforms to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yep. basically the Mormons who want to have sex become Raelians. <laughs> awesome. Each prophet was only able to work with humanity's current level of sophistication and understanding. So this is why they all have sort of different messages and couldn't really tell us anything new that we didn't know at the time. Um, But the important thing is all of these prophets told us that we have to love each other and, you know, we should come together in peace and unity and harmony and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So that's the central message. However, (laughs) even though there have been these 40 prophets before him, 
Claude would be the last one. This is our last chance to figure our stuff out and stop having wars and welcome the Elohim. <laughs> Okay. Um, was that? it the uh, uni- uh, Unitarian? No, uh, moon? The, the Reverend Sun, Sun Young Moon, who claimed that, that he, he, he had met with all of the other prophets, and Jesus had like shaken his hand and said, "Yes, you are, you are the the new Messiah." Oh, <laughs> one of us, one of us. <laughs> fancy! I find it actually pretty interesting that there doesn't seem to be an or else message associated with this. Like, this is your last chance. But if you screw it up or you don't, you know, figure it out, we'll just not come visit you. Yeah, and we'll it, just stop sending yeah. comments. Yeah. <laughs> so my question is, how would that be different from the current state of affairs? Because, like, people will still be claiming to be prophets. <laughs> yeah, they don't say. Just, you're screwed, whatever. There'll be a false um, dragon. Uh, so I guess if we don't manage it, they'll just not visit us and we'll have to figure out how to join the galactic community on our own. They're taking the ball and going home. Yeah. Warp technology. Achieve warp. Wait for Zephram. He'll sort it all out. Let's rock and roll! Six. So after getting these messages, Claude took the name Arael and is known by that name today. There's a whole bunch of organizations and reorganizations and eventually it became what we know as the Raelians. They're also called, like, the International Raelian Organization and yada yada. They're kind of um, organized in each country under whatever name they can get approved, I guess. And does Rael currently live in Canada? It seems from the Wikipedia article that he probably lives in Montreal, but he travels a lot. Like, he's not home a lot by the time. This was a conversation we had earlier today. I said, I thought they were from Quebec. (laughs) And she's like, I don't know that. (laughs) Yeah, but they're, like, they're all over the world. And they're especially popular in places like South Korea, it seems like. South Korea's got a big group. Japan's got a big group. There's groups all over the U.S. Um, I tried to find a local group, uh, but it looks like there are groups in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal, and that's pretty much it. We are not cool enough for the Raelians. No, not cool enough. We do have a Scientology mission. Yep. Yeah, yeah I walk past <laughs> it every day. Yep. Every day on my way to work. There's just that one guy. The one person promoting Scientology in Winnipeg is a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> He's on the corner of Portage, handing yep. out leaflets every once in a while. Sorry, honey, I'm taking over your segment. <laughs> So one of the central goals of Raelianism is to build what they call an embassy. Uh, so the Elohim, Rael says, respect us and love us so much that they will not come to Earth without an explicit welcome. And they won't come... <laughs> They're like vampires that way. <laughs> yes. They have to be welcomed into the Earth. Which didn't stop them the other times when they, like, right. visited Rael. But anyway... I'm not coming to see you till you have a nice house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, They also need an assurance that their presence will not cause strife or war. So, again, the peace thing is very important to them. Uh, So sometime before 2035, which is apparently the deadline, uh, first we need to stop having wars, because the Elohim will only come to a peaceful planet. Then the Raelians need to find a country that is willing to give them a small amount of land. And they, they stress this point very strenuously over and over again. We only need a small amount of land. And they specify they need about four square kilometers, which is a very small amount of land. Yeah. <laughs> 2035 is also the year I get to retire. <laughs> That's why you hit my magic 80. Uh, but they also need a few rights along with this land. They need some privacy and they want diplomatic immunity. And they say it just like any other embassy. So these are the things they need to find a country to give them before they can build an embassy. So once they have this four kilometer 
square piece of land, uh, they want to build uh, this very specific embassy that sort of looks like a donut from all the plans that I've seen. <laughs> the most delicious embassy out there. As we discussed, the Taurus is magic. <laughs> Magical, yeah. Ezekiel's wheel. <laughs> and so... They've actually been trying for many years to get Israel in particular to give them some land. And because Israel's good for that. No, because... <laughs> I was going to say something. We too. need a three-state solution. <laughs> Specifically because this first laboratory that the, the Elohim built was near Jerusalem, and right. like so was like the Garden of Eden was over there. No, and... the Garden of Eden was outside of Jacksonville, Missouri. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, but this is this has been very important to the royal aliens. <laughs> oh, sweetie, yes. They have a great like FAQ on their site. I love their FAQ. It's amazing. Is it really amazing? It's like I find it amazing because it's they're so just candid about everything. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, don't they clearly don't try to hide anything. No, they're not interested okay. in, in fooling anybody like Scientology seems to be. <laughs> right. They're just like, no, this is straight up who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So they want to have this, uh, this embassy in Jerusalem because the Elohim have told them that, uh, that Jerusalem was a very important place for them and they want to have it nearby everything. And I don't know, it's central for their spaceship. Excuse me. I, I don't really understand. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. I'm traveling across the galaxy, but we need someplace central. What does God need with a starship? <laughs> Unfortunately, uh... I said, what does God need with a starship? Uh, the Raelians have had, uh, some PR issues with Israel. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Mostly because they're, uh, they really like swastikas. Oh, Jesus. They're they're big fan. They they use it as part of their logo. So their logo. Yeah, that's gonna it, go over real well. Imagine this: it's a star of David with a swastika in the middle of it. Oh no! Oh well. boy! And they talk about how they're both symbols of peace and understanding yeah. and love. Yeah, no, like Hitler and, did not originate the swastika. Yeah, yeah, and that's all true. But again, PR issues with Israel. Yeah. <laughs> Know your audience. Yeah, yeah <laughs> a few no kidding. touchy things there. So they've more recently sort of changed it into like a swirly interlocked thing with I don't know. So it looks less like a swastika, but it's still clearly a swastika. <laughs> uh, so they haven't had much luck in uh, getting Israel to give them four square kilometers of land. Um, right now they're sort of pushing for Canada to give it to them. So far, no luck. <laughs> but sometime before twenty thirty five, they have to get this built. Um, it, it doesn't seem like, from what I read, that the whole alien thing has really influenced much of their, I guess, so-called doctrine. Like, they, it, they, doesn't, they don't have a whole long list of things like the aliens say that we should do this thing or this other thing or not do this other thing. And actually, like, the aliens have some truly absurd ideas and some very strange practices, but a lot of what they promote is actually pretty reasonable and good. Uh, so they're big on... Uh, pro-sexuality, uh, but they also seem to have strong policies against things like pedophilia and non-consent. Um, they advocate for GMO foods. They say that's the only way we can feed everybody on the planet, so we need to work with the technology that we have and, and figure it out. Bitch. Yeah, uh, They promote all kinds of programs that are um, anti-female uh, genital mutil- mutilation, because pleasure is very important to them. 
Um, so it's, it's really strange for me to mostly agree with what an organization is about, except for that whole alien thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so much more we could go into with the Raelians, their, their strange cloning thing. Yeah, the that they clone <laughs> That's where they first um, in my radar, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Or, you know, their giant conferences full of free love, but... Uh, but the, those are the core sort of alien ideas, according to the Raelians, that they're out there. They helped us out, get started with their giant laboratories, and they'll come back if we welcome them appropriately. Oh, oh, no, wait. Um, so when I was talking about how uh, they were trying to get Canada to, to give them the, the land, Part of it that I found really interesting was that the Raelians claim that whatever country gives them the land will receive billions of dollars in revenue somehow. They're not really clear how. Um, Alien trade? (laughs) Or I guess like people coming to see them? I don't know. But also, they will receive the protection of the Elohim. And I'm just like, but if we already stopped all wars and strife, what do we need protecting from? Maybe from <laughs> extraterrestrial bad guys. From yeah. other bad guys? Yeah, yeah, Maybe. Like the, the, the so the Elohim are the mob? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, a nice planet you have here. It'd be a shame <laughs> if something were to happen to it. But it sounds like you're not allowed to be a part of this like galactic community unless you're peaceful so i don't know that just seems like a like one of those like red herrings that's sticking out like why do we need protection you're making this sound scary <laughs> so like they're they're very nice aliens compared to the other religions we've talked about compared to the gold yes yeah. <laughs> it's not hard to believe in aliens I mean, I wouldn't say that I believe in aliens, but I think that the idea of alien life somewhere in the universe is more likely than not. And I would say probably almost certain because I don't believe in any special creation or anything like that. I think we are here alone as hubris. Right. But I, I could be wrong and I don't see any reason to believe that they have visited us or helped us along the way. They probably can't reach us no matter what. The speed of light being the barrier that it is, it is certainly unlikely that we have been visited. Uh, I would like to do a future show on UFOs, actually, because there were dozens of very specific UFO claims that were uh, made by Von Daniken in his book that I just decided not to cover at all. Have we done a UFO show? I don't think that we have. (laughs) To go search our tags. Yeah, but I don't think that that's what we're talking about next month. Ashlyn, what are we talking about next month? So Lauren has wanted to talk about, for a while, the 12-step programs and basically why they're garbage. So we're going to cover some of that next month. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Yeah, I can't wait to get all the mail from that one. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good night. Good night. night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Jem Newman. Life. 
Don't talk to me about life. So for all of the outtake noises, I'm going to use Huxley uh, Huxley screams. <laughs> They'll never listen to the outtakes again, Jem. <laughs> there was a, a time hop just the other day of us recording the Mindfuck episode. The what? The logical... The logical puzzles. The basilisk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just refer to it as the Mindfuck episode. <laughs> Worst. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love that episode. That episode was the beginning of the new era. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sure was. Two years ago. And Laura actually refers to uh, my bicycle as the bike of Theseus. <laughs> Because every part has been replaced. <laughs> not every part. No, not not the frame. The frame is every, still everything still but the frame. There. Yeah. So if the frame gets replaced, will it be a new bike, Jim? Uh, <laughs> nah, no. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, the answer, the answer the is thought Yeah. The, well, the answer is who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so what is this monstrosity? <laughs> Today on the show, did aliens build the pyramids? Spoiler alert! No! (laughs) Well, that's it, folks. Good night! I'm probably going to be speaking like this. This is the way I speak. Like a fake robot. Like a fake robot who's reading something. That is how I speak. (laughs) Oh, there's another another dude on the podcast now. (laughs) He's got more hair than you. (laughs) He does. We can't have this. We have to keep up our vagenda of manocide. <laughs> oh, it's such a great side. <laughs> Let's try something. Let's pick a totally arbitrary number. Five. Say the no, no, no. I have picked the arbitrary number. Let's that is so uh, arbitrary. Let's say the length of the room that we are recording in. Did you actually measure? Okay, this? I got out a tape measure earlier today. So, in in the terms of in terms of the ancient Mayans. Uh, a, a pyramid that was one hundred, that was uh, one thousand million times, uh, one that was one one thousand millionth the height uh, of the. Ah! I'm actually just going to pause here. Do we know uh, Egyptians? Uh, it's one of the system. like the higher the hair, the closer to God deals. They build a really tall thing. Block out the sun. Hope the aliens. I think she can reach them with a song and a broom. <laughs> that was ridiculously adorable. <laughs> His little snores. Yeah, Jim, you're gonna get really annoyed when you hear them, but leave them in because they're cute. And <laughs> oh, it's yeah. his contribution to no, I know. this episode. I, I will leave them the in. I will leave them in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Mayans and the Egyptians. I'm always very aware of how creaky your house is when I'm trying to sneak away. <laughs> That's okay. If we light the torches, Gondor doesn't always come. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Rohan. Okay, can we... Re- sorry, let's... Do it. If we light the tor- torches, Rohan doesn't always come. <laughs> <laughs> the second laugh was pretty fake. <laughs> I'll splice back in the first laugh. I'm confused. The whole thing is going to sound... Eerily wrong, but we can't put our fingers on it. <laughs> oh my god. Yosef Samuyevich Shklovsky. Oh, some Russian guy. Yeah. 
the uh, the rocky planet that was recently discovered discovered in the ha- discovered. You <laughs> <laughs> discovered something. Yeah. Yeah. You discovered. Yeah, to discover. <laughs> oh my god, you guys! That's perfect. How is this not in use already? <laughs> Because we are too awesome for science. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a rubble pile that has been discovered. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, stop it! It's not a rubble pile. Probably. Far too dense for that. Uh... Ooh. Maybe I'll get a, another cup of coffee. Are you capable of cooking for less than 20 people? Or... <laughs> I can cook for like six. That's the, I think that's the minimum. <laughs> Which I mean, yeah, and I really like having lots of leftovers because I feel like it's kind of a waste of effort if you make food and then it's all gone an hour later. <laughs> I don't like that. Jim, I'm gonna give you a baby. Okay. He decided to follow another dream of his. The you know. Yeah. Sorry. I know we're leaving the baby noises in, but we should probably cut out the baby flatulence. <laughs> You hand this child to me. So where should I start over from? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just like back it up maybe two or three sentences. Well, kind of all I've got. <laughs> well, I, I feel like we're likely to end on a on a down note. Oh, he didn't want to put both of Lauren's segments back to back. Lauren, you want to bring us home, so to speak? With Heaven's oh. Gate. Oh, oh God, Jim. Jim. Oh. oh, boy, that was a bad segue. <laughs> Ashlyn, what are we talking about next month? Uh, what do we want to do? Uh-huh. I did not get the drugs I was hoping for. Any hoodles? If today we're able to create a two-headed dog with six legs, is it possible that a similar creature existed thousands of years ago? And I say yes. Oh, oh, no, wait. 